I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to Off the Beat and Track Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Stu Whiffin. It's another week, therefore, it's another episode. Today, my special guest is super producer Gordon Raphael. Gordon produced the first two Strokes records, uh, which has obviously catapulted him into superstardom in the production world. Uh, incredible work with Regina Spector and so much more. And we go into it today, of course. Um, Gordon's such a lovely guy, currently residing in the UK. Growing up in the 90s in Seattle, uh, we, we, we talk about that. We talk about... Some incredible stories involving um, Alice in Chains, uh, and and we, we we talk about that that scene and what it was like to be in the thick of it. Um, re- really, really interesting chat. We talk about his new book that's coming out. Um, so much stuff, and we're going to hear it in a minute. But before we do that, a few thank yous. I'd like to thank Screw Pip and everybody at the Distraction Pieces Network. I would like to thank the team at Blue Murder Club Podcast that produced this. Uh, if you like your true crime podcast, go check that one out. Uh, I'd like to thank Hotel Chocolat, uh, who sponsor this podcast, official sponsors. Thank you very much. And I'd like to thank you lot, because we're into a new year. We're into 2023, and I've been doing this podcast now for a fair few years. We're, we're, we're fast approaching 500 episodes, I think. Um which is crazy, uh, and, and, it, and it's been such a joy, and it continues to be such a joy, and I get to kind of disappear to the end of the garden and, and sit in my little shed, and, you know, if I'm not doing them face-to-face, it's like open up the laptop, and and then within a, you know, a matter of minutes, on my screen is somebody that I know I'm going to have a really interesting and engaging conversation with, and generally it's somebody that I'm really in awe of and somebody that I'm a fan of, uh, and I'm just going to get to do what I like doing, which is talking about records and, and asking people about their lives. And it's just a real lovely thing that I then get to throw out there and, and you lot listen. So um, thanks ever so much for all of your so- support so far. And uh, and 2023, expect more of the same. And some, some other bits and pieces that are going to be coming your way uh, regarding this podcast. So um, I can't wait to tell you all about them as the year unfolds. I tell you all the time, um, if you'd like to support the pod, get involved with Patreon. Um, it's only a dollar a month. And uh, yeah, and for that, you get to watch all the episodes uh, and you get to 
get access to radio shows that I record um, for Patreons. I do a live show once a month for the Patreons uh, that where you can actually come on and be a guest uh, and talk about records. It's a lovely little uh, thing we do once a month. I can't recommend that enough. Um, and yeah, and so you can support the podcast there and it's at patreon.com forward slash off the beat and track. Uh, and as well as that, if you go to the show notes of this, there's a little link there called buy me a coffee. And I don't know if you know much about that, but if you enjoy something and, uh, and you know, you've took an hour out and you've enjoyed this and you want to say thank you, then, um, give us a follow on the socials or give us a share or whatever. But if you're feeling generous, you can buy me a coffee and uh, click that. And, uh, yeah, I like coffee. So you can buy me a coffee. Anyway, I think I'm done with, um, all the kind of um, hard sell stuff. Um, what I will say about the back catalogue, um, that, you know, I said there's so many uh, episodes available now. If you like your rock and roll, um, then uh, go check out my chats with um, with the Foo Fighters, um, with Papa Roach, with Deftones, with Tommy Lee. Um, had some real big rock and rollers on. If you like your, your indie stuff, go check out my chats with The Killers, with Suede, Idols, Sleaford Mods, Vaccines. Um, oh God, who else have we had on? I always forget. I always forget. And there's, I've had hundreds and I always say the same ones. Um, some incredible acting talent, uh, all your favourite comedians, um, some super producers as well as um, as Gordon. Uh, I've been really lucky that I've got to sit down with Fatboy Slim. I've got to sit down with Butch Vig, obviously another uh, person who, uh, you know, experienced high levels of, of uh, success and, and, and a wonderful creative output. Um within uh, the Seattle scene. Uh, so, yeah, that, that chat's available if you want to go and uh, explore that once you finish today's. Go check out my chat with Butch. Um, just go and have a look in the archives. Wherever you get your podcast. you know, go and have a look. Subscribe, that'd be great. And, uh, yeah, I'll see you at the other end of this uh, just for a little goodbye. But right now, I know why you're here. Let's do it. Please enjoy it off the Beat and Track podcast with the delightful Gordon Raphael. It's off the beat and track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whipping. We are recording. Gordon, how are you today? Feeling very well, thank you. Wonderful, wonderful. Where are you right now? Right now I'm in Hebden Bridge, West Yorkshire, in the north of England. Lovely, lovely. Okay, well we'll uh, we'll, we'll get to why you you're, you're there because it doesn't sound like a regional accent to me that one, but uh, but we'll we'll, huh. we'll get there. Um, before we do anything, um, I always like to ask guests uh, to sort of cast their mind back, <clears throat> uh, uh, you know, uh, to about a year ago now, and and tell me how they found the the process of uh, of lockdown. Certainly in the sort of both personally, Gordon, and also. How did you find it creatively? Well, I think it was a complete shock to my system. Um, it started with me leaving a job that I was about to do, producing a band in Germany. Instead of producing the band, I had to rush to the airport to get home to England before they closed the borders. And in my entire life, it's the first professional music engagement that I canceled. That was already just weird on day one. And then by 
maybe three weeks into the process, I realized that most of my personality was based on either walking into a city and being like on the street, in a coffee shop, in a studio with a bunch of musicians, on a stage, entertaining a crowd, playing music with a band. And to be without these people's experiences, it felt like I had a bit of an identity crisis, to be quite honest. I didn't know who I was supposed to be without my interactions. Yeah. That that's that was essentially the I think for so many of it was the tough bit, wasn't it? That that kind of lack of connection. It was it was yeah. and, and I guess that's I'm not suggesting we're all defined by by that, but it's a big part of, of, of everyday living, isn't it? Just that interaction yeah. and that and I know we're doing this remotely now and I think we've become far more comfortable having these conversations like this, but Initially, for me, I, I was never somebody that had used Skype much or anything like that. And to to all of a sudden find that like my work and and everything was being done like this remotely, it it was a bit weird because. And I think even sort of post lockdown, when I thought, oh, everything's going to go back to normal now, and it's like, well, hang on a minute, everything's so much easier. I've not got to you know drive up to where you are to record this and 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 it take a whole day we can jump on this and it's it's done in like an hour which is which sort of changed things but I then sort of took a, a step back and this is like a little kind of shed at the end of my garden that I'm recording in and as much as I'm having these conversations remotely essentially I'm sitting in a room on my own talking to a computer which is pretty <laughs> fucking mad and yeah. uh, and you think that's not proper interaction is it that's not proper connection that's not feeling that kind of sort of ambience in the room and body language and and do you know what i mean yes yeah it just felt felt very strange anyway that was then this is now let's talk records gordon i want you to tell me the song that you regard as having the greatest ever intro please Oh, I I have to say David Bowie's Rebel Rebel from the great um, Diamond Dogs album. That just song does it for me. Just from the first notes on, it gives me instant joy. So I'm intrigued because for somebody, uh, you know, that to, to, to speak to somebody who's been so influential on, on, on the industry as, as a producer and, and what, one thing I like to to ask creatives is those kind of because i mean if we use the strokes as an example right i think the strokes is a perfect mm -hmm. example of this like if we look at bowie it's classic rock and roll but it's got real pop sensibilities as well and i think for me as a, as a music fan and 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 as somebody that you know was was dj you know has always dj'd at indie music and guitar music alternative music to to, to, to young people when the strokes come out it was like oh wow this is like it sounds like all the stuff that I grew up listening to, but it's got this really kind of cool pop sensibility to it as well. It's got great pop melodies. And and so with that in mind, Gordon, like mm -hmm. the way that people now get music is way different to how I grew up listening to music, how, you know, when the Strokes released those records, you know, how they were being uh, enjoyed and consumed. Now we're watching you know generations that follow getting their music via things like tiktok and and bands mm -hmm. being more preoccupied than with getting on spotify playlists rather than getting on the radio uh and seeing the kind of 
you know, the, the importance that so many artists put on getting on these Spotify playlists. In a world now, it's love or hate Spotify, it's, it's got pros and cons. I know it's not necessarily always that rewarding for the artist, but it does also offer a, a platform to get get your stuff out there to a big audience. Um, but there's so much on there. And so what we're seeing and what I'm seeing is very, very... I'm, I'm going right around the answers with this question, Gordon, but we'll get there. But we're seeing attention spans of younger people getting shorter and shorter, and we're seeing lots more, maybe more sort of pop records, start with a chorus, hook them instantly, you know, right. so that they don't get lost in this kind of barrage of music on, on Spotify, or they get picked up on TikTok because they've just got that instant hit that that these shortening attention spans of, the, you know, the generations coming through seem to be. And mm-hmm. so... My question to you is, with all of these changes in how people consume the music and et cetera, does any of that filter into your creative process? The answer is no. Good. Um, I think the same part of my mind that was always concerned with, well, now that we've recorded it, what are we going to do with it? Now that I've made a band, how are we going to go out into the world? It's... I, the, the, the thing about social media that is so valuable to me is it's become a way to get out into the world. To If I make a song, I can put it on Bandcamp and put the message out on my Instagram. And by tomorrow, some people, friends in New York and Argentina will hear it and say, good job, etc. In the old days, I would have to struggle for decades to get a record deal and then wait for months for the record to come out. And maybe if we're lucky, the budget would include some promotion and maybe it would be written about in a magazine or we'd get to tour. So things have completely changed, but I wouldn't say it's incredibly for the negative 100%. And even where there's a huge trend for shorter attention spans and a new kind of music that's based on the blip of the internet. The fact of the matter is that bands like David Bowie and the Spiders from Mars and Led Zeppelin and the Beatles and the jazz greats, they're all getting their moment in the sun and probably more people are listening listening to them now on a daily basis than ever before just because of the population of listeners that never was there. Our population has exploded. And when I look at TikTok, it knows what I like. And so I'm seeing young musicians, 16-year-old of every gender, you know, playing Led Zeppelin songs on their guitar or their own music that shows that they're already accomplished musicians. So not and to do to become an accomplished musician on a keyboard a drum, a vocal, it requires hours of dedication. Short attention bands will not fly to let somebody show you incredibly complex chord changes, which is also inhabiting on the internet right now. Perfect answer. Perfect answer. Thank you. Okay. Gordon, I'm going to ask you to tell me the first song you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you, please. Well, my father was a jazz musician, But when I was growing up, there was a folk music revival happening in America. And so he also bought an an acoustic guitar and started learning these songs that he was hearing. And one of them that I heard probably him play for me first, and then I heard recordings, was a song called Flora 
by Peter, Paul, and Mary. And it conjured to my six-year-old person these stories of the Wild West and these tragic individuals that went out to find their fortune only to meet terrible ends. And this one's about like a love affair gone wrong and a murder crime of passion. And that really just blew my mind when I heard that when I was a kid. Oh, wonderful. With some... You know, I'm presuming that home was a very musical place. You know, if if your dad was a musician and, and as you said, there was, you know, a guitar in the house and such. Was you actively encouraged to to explore music and instruments? In a way, well, on the third grade, so when I was eight years old, on the first day of school, they announced, you, you can pick any instrument you want to play. And I said, oh, wow. And I went home and said, dad, dad, I'm going to play the trumpet. He said, no, you're not. You're playing the piano. <laughs> so I I was encouraged to do music, but it had to be on my father's terms. So years of piano lessons followed, which I did not enjoy. And I always wonder what my life would be like if I had actually picked the trumpet. <laughs> Why the trumpet? Why did I don't know? It just seemed uh, something about it appealed to me. I don't know if it was, I didn't know if I knew what the sound of it was. It just looked cool, you know? And maybe I'm very glad I didn't pick trumpet because keyboards was very cool for me in rock bands later. And I don't know if I would have had as many opportunities as a trumpeter. Yeah. Yeah. So, whereabouts was growing up in America? I was born in New York, so I would have heard Peter, Paul, and Mary in New York. And then I moved to Seattle when I was eight years old. And that's where I had the opportunity to go into music for the first time. Oh, wonderful. Tell me about your, your sort of memories of, 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 you know, your sort of early days in, in New York. Can you remember much from back then? Yes, I remember a lot because I had extended family, like I had grandparents and cousins and everything. And I grew up in the Bronx because my father was going to school still when I was uh, like to call university when I was born. And I have vague memories of the Bronx. And I have lots of memories of going into Brooklyn where my family members would gather for big dinners. You know, so I remember the family feeling of New York more than like, say, the buildings, although I was obsessed from an early age with drawing cities, like sporting goods stores next to building. I like to draw buildings and label them like I saw driving down the street in the city. So was you always a creative kid then, Golden Lot, whether it was music or drawing or? Yeah, I, I won an art contest when I was six years old for a painting I did. And it, it was a birdhouse but it had an entrance and an exit because that's what we had at school. You'd go in the entrance and you'd go out the exit. So I made a birdhouse with an entrance and an exit and it kind of got sent around the world. And that was my, the beginning of my big art career. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Well, let's talk about um, school uh, whilst we're in the the formative years. And and for track three, I'm going to ask you to tell me the song that reminds uh, you of your time at school, please. Right. Well, by the time I was probably 10 years old, rock and roll had come out and me and my best friends were well aware of it. And we thought we were very cool, cooler than other 10 years old, because we would spend our time at recess not kicking a ball, but talking about John Lennon's lyrics, the significance of the latest Beatles song and what it could possibly mean, this kind of thing. So for us, 
being affiliated with rock music was kind of like a stat like we felt like we were in the know and so whatever music i chose i made sure it would be whatever my favorite was was usually very far different from what the other kids were hearing on the radio i wanted to always went for the obscure and the weird stuff so what have you gone for for this one for this one frank zappa and the mothers of invention the song called mother people from one of my favorite albums ever we're only in it for the money and this was something my father actually brought home he brought home two influential albums that happened the same year one is sergeant peppers by the beatles and then the other was this we're only in it for the money and interestingly frank zappa made a parody of sergeant pepper out of this album he even tried to imitate the cover and put it backwards where the inside was on the outside and everything was they're all wearing dresses and they look just kind of horrible and instead of beautiful flowers there's like rotting fruit in the collage and so this album they both albums were very influential and they were both kind of psychedelic in their own way i mean tell me about the kind of impact that that had on you because if you hear Sergeant Peppers, yes. you know, for the first time, it's still got lots of pop sensibilities, but, you know, it's, it's it explores a lot on, on that record. Mm-hmm. But then when you start, you know, listening to Frank Zappa, there's fucking crackers, man. And, yes. like, and yeah. like, how, how did that kind of, uh, uh, you know, as a, as a lad in his formative years, Tell me but, about, you know, wh- where that put you, because it is a bananas record. I had a little cousin when I was in New York, and by the time he was like nine or ten, he was already like a film buff. And he would take me to see these films in New York of like the net from the 1920s and the 30s. And he was really into the Marx Brothers. So already the zanier and the weirder and the more improbable anything was it really appealed to my sense of humor and my budding intellect whatever that might have been okay so even sergeant pepper when you hear within you and without you with the sitars and you hear lucy in the sky with diamonds the lyrics and the sounds that's already yeah you might think it's pop sensibilities but for what the world knew about music, yeah. this was cracker. This was over the line of crackers already. <laughs> and ten-year-old me heard that those songs from the Beatles and said, "Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. That is the interesting stuff. You know, that's where it's going." And then the Zappa was like taking off even further. The musicality of it is incredible. Like everybody's really in control, and it's almost like orchestral rock and roll. Yeah, but. The subject matter and the lyrics and the illustrations, as I said, is just beyond into the world of bonkers, which appealed to me greatly. <laughs> Love it. Um, did you enjoy school? I did. I did. Um, I did enjoy school. I think it came very easily for me, like reading all the things in elementary school would say came really easy for me so i enjoyed the recognition that i didn't have to do much work and i got decent grades later when things like if i can say it on the radio marijuana and different social interactions and puberty entered my life i found myself concentrating far less on studying and so it became a bit more like some it was a bit of a distraction from music and other things did you know what you wanted to be 
when you was at school? Mm. Huh. My dad always made a big point of telling me that a musician's life is no way to live. So there was part of me that wanted to be a musician, but was a bit of afraid of, I was conditioned to be afraid of that lifestyle. So I had kind of science and psychology and possible filmmaking as career choices. Um, and I wasn't very, to be honest, I wasn't very good as a musician, even though I was in bands from the time I was 13, I was always the one kind of getting kicked out because I couldn't remember the parts and I, my fingers would hit the cracks between the keys. Like there are many reasons I wasn't a great musician. So it didn't look likely that I would be able to follow that as a career path. With some, you know, to, to, to pursue music, uh, Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You know, or you mentioned sort of filmmaking. These are things where you're kind of thrust into the public and, and, and judged and, and, and scored on, on what, you know, what your output is. Was you, mm-hmm. was you a confident young man? Well, what you said ties into one of my main fear tactics my dad used. He said, if you're like me and you play music at home on the weekends, nobody can tell you what to do. But the minute you step into the public eye, you'll be playing music you hate because that's what's going to be popular. And I thought, oh, you know, that sounds just terrible. Um, I had a moment when I was supposed to go to university, I was 18 years old, and for some ungodly reason, I got picked in the best band in our city. They wanted me to play. And so suddenly, I was thrust into actually being a rock star. While my other friends went to college, I was playing concerts two nights a week, and I was making a little money, $80 a week, to be honest. But that was like, I'm like a millionaire, basically. And... So, yeah, I had this confidence kind of, wow, I must be good because I'm in the best band and I'm living the life right out of high school. And so 
I had a lot of confidence right from that point forward. Yes. Was you was you like I mean at that point to get them kind of you know to get that opportunity was you know was you a show off? Did you like the attention that that come with it? I always like the attention, even in my junior high and high school bands, being on a stage and having people look at me while I played music and knowing how cool me and my friends were, that was a big source of boosting. But yeah, there was an ego explosion and a great enjoyment of being a public figure when I got in that big band and the ego thing went way out of bounds. Like I was really, <laughs> I was really an awful person and everybody let me know about it. But I didn't care until the negative repercussions were so bad that I had to actually face what I was doing. So, I mean, from them kind of experiences, I mean, working with, you know, so many young bands, like, you know, do you see these sort of circles repeat? You know, do you see like these bands coming through and it's like, all right, these are about to blow up and then then the egos are going to go out of control and then they're going to, you know, come back down to earth. You know, can you see the patterns constantly sort of reappearing? Um, my love of music was there from I was 10 and eight years old and it's never left. So the people that work with me, they're really interested in having good recordings of their songs. And as such, I speak a language and I can speak their language and we're only concerned with the music. It's very rare that someone makes me feel uncomfortable in my own studio. Now, I give the artists a lot of leeway. Like, I want to know what are your ideas. And as soon as they say an idea, no matter how far-fetched it might seem, I'm going to give them a chance to try that idea out because I have a lot of respect for young people's creativity. And I even had experiences as a young musician myself where older producers and engineers kind of shot my ideas down before I even could hear them because they knew better. They were experts and I was just a kid. And I didn't ever intended to become a producer, but once I did, I realized that I was going to try to undo that and never be that person. Yeah. yeah. That's not working like that. You know, you need to work with people, don't you? And yeah. Yeah. 100%. 100%. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's stay in the formative years. Tell me about the first record you remember buying from a record store, Gordon. Oh, that's easy. The first thing I did once I started really loving music was I started listening to AM radio. There was a a really great station called KJR in Seattle. And for the first couple of years I listened to it, they played nothing but songs I enjoyed, like phenomenal songs. And I found out one of the DJs was going to be at our local Kmart, which is, I don't know what the equivalent might be. Uh, It's just a real cheap brand name uh, kind of everything store, department store, I guess, low budget department store. Every town had one. And he was going to be at our local one hawking a record that the radio station put together of all the top songs of the year. So I went to go see Pat O'Day, my big hero DJ, and I bought for $4 this album of KJR, All American Hits, All American Stars, which was a misnomer because many of the bands were British. Uh, Yeah, whatever. And so one of the songs on that record was Along Comes Mary by The Association which was a song I really loved, and it was on the first record I bought, and I still love the song to this day. Tell me about um, 
your relationship with the record store, you know, from from those oh. you know, early days of, 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 you know, buying your first record through to, I imagine, then finding your local record store and then, you yeah. know, but did that become an obsession and a passion and, and, a, and an important place for you, the record store? It was like one of my holy places. It might have been like my church growing up. And interestingly, it ties in with something you said earlier. Back in those days, I could go into my record store. There were three in our town that I really liked. Very small, very cool. And I could go in, which I went like once a month. I went into the record shop. My mom would drop me off and I'd have some money saved up for my allowance for one record a month or something. And I actually knew by looking through the racks, which were the new records, I could keep track of what the new releases were just by looking at them because there weren't that many. Yeah. You know, there were maybe 10 to 15 new records each month. And so I go, oh, this looks interesting. And often I'd buy a record based on the cover. If the cover looked amazing, those big vinyl record covers looked like some kind of art that spoke to me or the name of the band was cool or they looked amazing on the cover i would spend, i would i would gamble on it so that was kind of my experience i felt like i knew what was new and i bought really cool records and i even put screws in my wall so i could display my favorite record covers across the walls they were like my best friends really absolutely does that that love of a you know a record store continue to this day if you should find yourself somewhere where there's like a, a little independent record store are you going in i do go in um i've had some revelations recently okay which is first of all i stopped going in for a little while because i have so many records and sometimes three copies and four copies of my favorite ones that i kind of have to slap my hands and say no more record you got enough it's filling up your house every time you move house it's like hours of schlepping boxes of records you know and but still when i go in my neighbor in my neighborhood here the two closest towns are manchester and leeds and i always go to the record shops and only a few months ago it hit me like wow there's no used records anymore yeah. all the records in the record shops are reissues brand new pressings of yeah. old records there's also new records but most of the record shop is filled up with all the classic records but done and they're 28 pounds each now. And I read a lot about it because I'm wondering, like, are the new records as good as the old ones, even though the old ones are a little scratchy when you buy them? And it turns out that the process of making the new records, it comes from a digital source instead of the analog tape like the old ones were done. And there's a lot of debate in the record community about, oh, yeah, it's more pristine or, oh, yeah, the sound has changed. Um, it's hard to tell right now. I don't have an opinion. I'm just aware that the new re that the old records are very hard to find now. The really first generation vinyls that used to be everywhere, yeah. and for a long time, vinyl wasn't even popular. So record stores were kind of lonely places where nobody went because we can download it for free. So why should we pay? But now vinyl's a big deal again. But I'm wondering about the source and the tone quality, if I'll be shocked at the difference that my old favorite records don't sound the same anymore. So what age, uh, when, when was it that you, you left Seattle? Well, the last time I left Seattle, 
was at the end of the 90s. That's when I moved to New York and made a studio and when I met the Strokes soon after that. But I go back, I go back quite frequently. Tell, tell me a little bit, uh, you know, as for somebody who's, you know, I'm, I'm fast approaching 50, uh, kind of hit the sweet spot in, you know, for, for, for going out and, and enjoying the exciting new music. Tell me a little bit about how it felt being in Seattle in, in, in the early 90s and being exposed to well, what become the biggest music on the planet come from right. Seattle. How was them times? Right. Well, I don't know if you know this, but I wrote a book recently. Okay, tell me all about it's it. About, it's, a, it's, it's called The World is Going to Love This, Up from the Basement with the Strokes. Mm -hmm. And I talk about moving to New York from Seattle after the grunge, exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I wax really poetic about Seattle, what it was like before the grunge movement and during and after. And basically... I had already left Seattle trying my hand in New York and then LA because Seattle has net was never a popular place for music. In fact, the main musicians that ever came out of Seattle that were notable, Quincy Jones, Jimi Hendrix, and Hart of all things, mm -hmm. they had to move to other places to get their attention in the in the industry. And suddenly in 1989, we had Tad and Mudhoney coming to England to yeah. tour. It's like, what? Bands from Seattle going to England? That has never happened before. And that kicked off this glorious five years where our town became the center of music in the whole world. And that was glorious because beforehand it was like a fishing village. You played in one club a couple times and to 60 people who were interested in music. It was really... and. You, the other places you could play cover tunes, covers, but you couldn't play your own music. Yeah. And in 1989, all that changed. And suddenly we had three venues that were packed every night of the week. And Funkadelic and Bootsy Collins and Neil Young, everybody was coming through to play. And all the young bands from our town were playing. And it became like living in the Jerusalem of music. And and I'm glad that you, you you referenced those bands because obviously there's there's bands that had way bigger success. Obviously, imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, ninety six percent replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a thirty night guarantee. Plus, get fifteen percent off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and three hundred and sixty five day returns. Obviously, with the, the likes of Nirvana and Pearl Jam and such, but tell me, like, how how exciting did it feel? In you know, you know, when you know, hearing that bands like Tad uh, and, and Mud Honey and and, and Mud Honey, you know, with, with, with tracks like Touch Me, I'm sick, having sort of commercial success. Like, right. how did that feel? Well, 
I was working, and so were all those other bands. In uh, in you know, there was a whole generation previous to that success. So even Mudhoney, they had a band before that called Green River. Yeah, and I recorded Green River. And in Green River were some guys from Pearl Jam yeah. and some guys from Mudhoney when they were teenagers, and it was already like these these people were great. Chris Cornell, like I saw him in 1986 with Soundgarden, and and years later, what I saw when I saw him, I said, "This is the most incredible singer I've ever seen." It's like two Jim Morrison's in this 20 year old kid's body. How do they get in there, and how does he do that? Yeah. And so it was just glorious when the attention was well deserved and it went out and made echoes in the world. Wonderful, wonderful. Mm -hmm. Okay. I want to ask you to tell me the song that soundtracked your years in clubs. My years in clubs. There was one incredible club in Seattle called The Vogue. And when this record came out, suddenly I turned into, I started dancing, which I never danced. But when I heard this music, it just, ah, I know how to do this one. Okay, so um, let's see, which song is it? Uh-oh, uh I'm reaching a clubbing clubbing hmm was that on my list one two three four five i'm, I'm having a blank here no uh, worries every track five i think five one two three four five one two three how many did we pick seven that's why i left it off can you give me a moment it won't mess us up will it maybe no ned, ned, ned for oh yeah i thought it was going to be this but i couldn't see it on my list the song is called Hypnotize by Scritti Politti. Oh, what a band. And what an incredible album and what an incredible song. And that was the way I wanted to dance. Yes. So did Scritti Politti uh, sort of make it, obviously made it through to the, the, the club scene in the States then? Yes. With that album, like apparently they had a different style beforehand and afterwards. Mm. But for this album, somehow they went to New York and they were working with like Michael Jackson's keyboardist and drummer, like these incredible funk and soul musicians yeah. and this great backing vocalist, Tawatha Agi. And this music came out that was, I can't even describe it. It's indescribable. I don't think there's anything like it since. Um, yeah. Monumental electronic dance music, but very funky. Yeah. I, it's, it's, it's really weird. I think, Scritti Politti do not get the, the 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 credit in 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 the British press that that I think they deserve. When you 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 know you read all these charts and compilations of these, you know what a, a, a told you're told are important and influential artists, and and many of them deserve their their place there. But Scritti Politti often get like left off of them things, and I think that as a band, I think they're they just fucked with genres and and right. like nobody else uh, certainly at that point as well like an incredible band absolutely uh, well it it wasn't until really recently when i went down a bunch of youtube rabbit holes like i want to know about scritti politi there's so little press about that like what who were they and i found out that green the singer like he had all these opportunities and he made that brilliant album but even during the making of in the studio and right after it came out when he had to do promo tours he just went through this internal realization that this process of going in studios and touring and doing press has nothing to do with me i can't stand it 
So he was like one of these rare and early guys that he had all this talent, but he never really thought, well, what the repercussions of if I go into the public, what it's going to be expected of me. So I think the fact that he just didn't, he just backed out of the promo and the rock star mm -hmm. thing that, you know, the press doesn't really have time for those kind of people. There's not a story about him that you'll find written and you can't find much information really. I know. And I guess in a, in a, you know, in a strange way, that kind of, the fact that you've got to dig a little deeper to find something out on him just adds to the magic of that band, I think. Absolutely. You'll take you home. Track six. Tell me a mm -hmm. favorite song from an artist from your home county, please. There you go. That one's easy. My probably one of my, yeah, my personal favorite band that came out of the Seattle grunge scene was Alice in Chains, mm -hmm. which metalheads talk about them, but most people tend to go like Nirvana, that was the one, or Soundgarden, or Mudhoney, you know, that's the cool ones to talk about. But when I heard this, I saw Alice in Chains play their very first show in Los Angeles. I was in the audience, and it was another thing where I said, that singer is from Seattle. I've never heard a voice like that before. It's definitely one of the coolest voices I've ever heard in music. And there was this song called Sunshine from their very first album that totally defines what I like about the band and what I like about Lane Staley's singing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, what a loss. What a voice. It's yeah. Ridiculous. Right. And I think, you know, for me, I think that the first time, I think Wood was the first track I heard. Uh-huh. And I remember just seeing that the, the video on MTV and just thinking, mm -hmm. because at the time, you, Seattle was spoiling us with vocalists, you know. Right. Like, you, you mentioned Chris Cornell's uh, voice, which is just from a different planet. And, when, mm -hmm. you know, and you, Kurt's voice was different level and you know, Eddie Vedder's got a completely unique voice completely yeah. different from all the others and you know and that's without talking about you know Tad and and and, and Mudhoney and yeah and I think you're right that it is always I think Alice in Chains was like the metalers grunge band they were the one <laughs> the metal kids loved mm -hmm. Alice in Chains and uh mm -hmm. and and I think yeah like what a what an incredible band. And uh, did you ever get to kind of, you know, work with them in any capacity? I didn't work with them, but I had one day, a very special day where I actually spent the day with Lane Staley. It was a very valuable moment. I was already a huge fan of his. And I wrote a letter to his manager because I knew her from Seattle's past. And Lane came and spent the day and we just hung out and talked. And it, that's the only time I got to see him or talk with him in my whole life. But that's a very special moment I'll never forget. Oh, wonderful. What was you talking about? Just talking about records and hanging out and just... To be honest, we made the bond because of the subject of addiction, drug addiction. Yeah. He had just gotten out of rehab for the very first time. And I had some clean time and I was kind of... And I wrote to the manager saying, you know what, Susan... I am probably the only person who doesn't use drugs in the entire Seattle scene. If Lane Staley wants someone to hang out with that is clean and sober, here's my phone number. And he took me up on the offer. And so that's what we talked about. But I also told him how much I loved his music. And we just hung out and just 
you know, casually chat. It was very comfortable. He was a very incredible person. He was very magical. He looked a little like some kind of magical elf, yeah. really. Yeah. Oh, that's a wonderful story. Last track. I want you to play Tastemaker now, please, Gordon, and tell me a yes. song that you think many people may not know that you would like them to hear, please. That's easy. I produced a band in Seattle, not this summer, but last summer, and they're called Cab Ellis. And they have a song called The East Coast Hold On, which I think is magnificent, not just because I produced it. It's just very special in every way. And people will probably be surprised that I like it and that I produced it because it's not what I'm known for. But I really want people to hear that song. Well, we make that really easy because we do put together a Spotify playlist to accompany the podcast where people can go and listen to that and if we have a uh, track that we've, we've spoken about today. But but tell people a little bit about uh, the band and, and, and the sand because it's quite unique. Right. Well... These guys contacted me. For, they were li all living in Los Angeles. Now they live in New York. And they sent me these demos. And I thought, what, what is this really? It sounds like that Mungo Jerry song in the summertime from the 60s. It has a very gruff voice. But there's also a hip-hop delivery. But I'm hearing a horn section as well. Like, what is this strange combination of sounds? And I really didn't know what I was getting into when I recorded them. And it even took me probably a few days in the studio to figure out what was going on. Like they were playing and playing and they were very meticulous about their tempos and their grooves. And about the fifth day, I started hearing the music clearly and going like, wow, this is going to be super special. And it's the, the horn section and the hip hop delivery, but the lyrical stories are like nothing else. And the sound of the voice is really strange and cool. It, it certainly is. Uh, it's the first time I heard it when when I got your list uh, of songs over. I went and checked it out and then checked out some other stuff. And, uh, yeah, we spoke a lot today about bands that mess with genres. And uh, and they're well in the mix of that. And uh, But it's 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 a glorious sound. And, uh, and like I say, we make it very easy for listeners of the podcast to go and check that out. Gordon, before we uh, wrap things up, we're going to head into 2023, and that the you know the world is back to back uh, a far more normal place than what it was a couple of years ago, and uh, and so with a positive mindset and and you know looking into an exciting new year of 2023, uh, what are you looking forward to next year, Gordon? Personally, and what's going to be happening professionally? Well. This may sound like a shameless plug, but I've decided that it's time to release my 17 personal albums that I've been hiding very well from the world starting in early 2023. I maybe put out a song a month for three years or something like that. So I'm really excited to show the world my own personal music that I wrote and recorded all these years. And so that's going to be one of my most exciting things. The other will be going around the world doing book launch parties and promoting the book that I made. And that those are my two top things. Wonderful. In regards to the music release, uh, mm -hmm. when did you start recording this? So this is music that's going to be released that was recorded from until when? 
Between the years of 1980 and the year 2021. Holy shit. That's a lot yeah. of music. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So 17 albums. That's like 170 songs. Uh, you know, it's a lot to ask people to listen to. <laughs> uh, and you mentioned the book uh, earlier. Remind our listeners what it's called. The world is going to love this up from the basement with the strokes wonderful and if people want to keep up to speed with everything that you're you're up to gordon where's the best place to follow you oh instagram's a good gateway drug <laughs> what a perfect way to finish the podcast gordon it's been an absolute joy talking records with you mate thank you so much thanks for having me absolute pleasure i'm gonna press stop don't go anywhere okay wow Wow, 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 wow. Get to spend the day just hanging out with Lane. I mean, that's incredible. You know, working with Green River. You know, but I didn't do a deep dive on the strokes. I'm always mindful that, you know, sometimes people that, that, that you know, experience so much kind of attention for, for, for a certain project, you know, they've probably talked about it a lot. And, uh, you know, those strokes records his work on the production there speaks for itself and i was just you know more interested in kind of going into some areas that maybe he doesn't talk about all the time and it was really interesting you know getting them sort of stories about that that time at seattle and and yeah just just some really really interesting you know nuggets there were from a, a really lovely guy he was he was such a kind kind dude and uh, go check out the book um go give them a follow on the socials you know check out Bandcamp, and uh yeah go uh, experience you know 30 years of work that's just going to start pouring out over the uh the, the the coming years so yeah i guess we're kind of done uh so thanks again to gordon for coming on thanks again to you always for listening go check out the back catalogue now like i say if you like your producers then go check out my chats with with butch vig um go check out my chats with fatboy slim um just go and have a rummage because you'll find all your favourite bands are in there, and uh, and they're all for free. Uh, go check it out if you want to support the Patreon. That and everything else is at your one-stop shop, offthebeatandtrackpodcast.com. I'm back next time. See you soon.